Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. do something else, something we did in the first service, but everybody stand up and connect, grab a hand somewhere, stretch across the aisles, get, you might have to move in to do this, we're going to connect with everybody here today, and what I want to do is I just want to paint a picture of what it's like to be connected in the body, yeah, it's awkward, okay, you're going to grab a hand of somebody you don't know, okay, it's awkward, but uh, this is part of what it's like to be in the body, of Christ, that you're connected to people that maybe you wouldn't be connected to in any other way, but we share something in common. We share Christ in common. And so I'm going to pray over us as we're all connected together, and, and that this would be like a picture that would be a visible reminder to us of how we're connected, and how if there's a gap somewhere, you notice that there's a gap. You don't get connected, right? So let's pray right now. Lord, I thank you so much that we can be connected into the body. And Lord, I thank you that you are fitting people together, that you are causing us to be connected together with one another. That you, in that picture that's painted as the body of Christ, that every single part is needed, every single part of us are, are required to be in the body, to be connected to one another, and that if one of us lets go, the other one can hang on. And if one of us gets weak, the other one can, can be strong. And if one of us gets pulled down, that the other can lift the other up. And so, Lord, we, we ask that that would be the case, not just in this physical reminder today, but it would be that way in the Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab a seat today. We're going to be week two of It Takes a Body. How many of you guys, that just, that just was uncomfortable for you? You have your personal space, and that's it. I'm with you, all right? Uh, but that's good. It's good for us. All right, we're going to be talking about Nehemiah. And how many of you guys are familiar with Nehemiah? In the book of Nehemiah, something very interesting uh, happens. And just to kind of catch you up, how many of you guys are familiar with Daniel uh, in the Bible? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they actually had other names in there. We won't get the, all of that. But in, uh, at one point, they were taken as exiles out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, and they were taken to Babylon. And then they were there, it was prophesied by Jeremiah, I believe, that they were going to be there for 70 years, and so they were there, and then at some point, they started to get released back to go back to their homeland. It had been burned out, it had been destroyed, and so they get sent back. And so we we read in the book of Ezra how we see that like a first wave came back and they started to build some things. And then a second wave came back and it gets all the way to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is the last wave that comes back through. And so Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king, the Bible says. His job was to taste the food or to taste the drink before the king did, just in case one of his enemies wanted to try to poison him. And so if that were the case, then Nehemiah would die first. How many of you would like that job? I mean, right? But he was just a guy, normal guy, working a normal job. And all of a sudden, he talked to, to some people in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. It says, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so Nehemiah hears this information. Let's get a picture of the, of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. It's uh, a little bit later down there. In the, there we go. And so we could see all this wall around Jerusalem had been broken down. They had rebuilt the temple. They would rebuilt some of the things, but the wall. And in those days, if you had a city without a wall, it meant that it was defenseless, that it had, it had no protection. And so when Nehemiah hears this word, hears this information, in verse 4 it says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept 
and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. In fact, we'll find that later on it, it tells us that for four months he was in weeping and fasting and mourning. Now, what kind of news in your life would it take for you to go into this shutdown mode of weeping, fasting, and mourning for months? What kind of news? What kind of tragedy? What kind of news? The interesting thing for Nehemiah is that this information was old information. That it had some, This has been that way for a long, long time. In fact, it wasn't just 70 years. It was actually 140 years before that this, these things had all been destroyed. Okay, And so these, this has all been old news. But something of this old news hits Nehemiah in a brand new way. And all of a sudden, in this moment, Nehemiah understands his purpose in the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, he understands that he is supposed to go back and to rebuild these walls. And so he's just a regular guy working a regular job. And all of a sudden, he gets this news and he starts to discover his purpose in the kingdom. Here's what I want you to understand. There was a before this news, Nehemiah, and there was an after this news, Nehemiah. There was a before Nehemiah just going to work, doing his thing. Then there was an after version of Nehemiah where everything changed about his life. His focus changed. His attention changed. His purpose changed when he discovered where he fit in the body. And so the question I have for us today is, have you ever wondered where you fit in the body? Have you ever wondered if there's a spot for me? Have you ever wondered, and let me just ask it this way, what if there's going to be a before version of you and an after version of you, and you just don't have the news yet? What if you're getting ready in the timeline of your life to run into this moment where everything changes for you. Where there's a before, and you say, well, I think I maybe already had that. Listen, if you're thinking I maybe already had that, you haven't had it. Because <laughs> it's going to be different. Everything is going to change. What if that's the case for some of you today? I believe it is. I believe it is. And, and so today I want to look at how we find our place in the body. Okay, one of, one of the th ways that we find our part in the body. Now, it's well documented that I have two dogs. I've shared about this before. I have two dogs. I have one normal, nice, awesome dog. And then I have one crazy, stupid dog. How many guys have one of those, right? And so I have, I have one normal dog and then one crazy, stupid dog. And so anytime we'd let out the gate, and I've, I've shared this before, this dog just runs, and he runs, and he runs, and you never see him again. And he'll, an hour later, run through the yard, and then you won't see him again for another hour. You could throw a brick at his head. It would not stop him. There's nothing stopping this dog. And he'd just keep running and running and running. So we got to our wits end. We were just like, what do you do with this dog? You know, as soon as, if he escapes, he's digging, he's prying off the metal fence. He's eating the fence. It's a metal fence, and he's eating it to get out. And he would just take off. So what do you do with this dog? And so we were at our wits end, like, what do we do? So we're trying everything. Finally, we try one of those invisible fences. How many of you guys have seen those? Okay, they're like a wire that you bury in your yard. You put these collars on the dog, and when they get close to the fence, they get a shock, right? Just say, don't do that. So we did all that. We, we got the whole fence. We got the collar on the dogs, and, and we were trying to go through the training, and we let him out, and all of a sudden, he just bolts right through the fence, just right through the fence. And so it's like we kept trying and trying, nothing. So we buy the industrial strength, commercial-grade version of whatever it's going to take. It's still safe. It's still approved. Don't send me letters. Uh, but this was the high version, right? I mean, this was the high-dollar version. If this doesn't work, nothing works. And so we put it on him, and we test it out, and he gets the shock. You know, he knows it's there. But as soon as he sees a squirrel or something, it's over, and he's out, you know. By the grace of God, by a miracle of God, I don't, I'm, I don't know how it happened. Somehow this dog finally learned to stay in the fence. And so this crazy, 
crazy dog all of a sudden is now inside the boundaries of this fence. And, and so one night, I walked out because I heard some noise outside. And I've got a couple acres out there, and so I, it's kind of like woods, and I, I just don't know what's going on. And so I go out, and my two dogs are out there. And I got my good dog has got like his nose. Yeah, how you guys have a dog that follows you around so close? I mean, his nose is like on my leg as I'm walking around. You know, he's like so close, just following me around. And so he's staying with me to protect me, to guard me if anything should happen. And my crazy dog, my crazy stupid dog, starts running around out there. And so I'm like, what is he doing? Finally, I figure out what he's doing. He is now, he has so much energy that he's constantly, systematically patrolling the edges of the fence, like over and over again, and alerting of anything that would happen. And so as I'm walking out there, I've got my, my good dog, and now my new good dog, who's out there, and he's patrolling the fence. I'm like, this is like the best case scenario. I've got one dog to protect me. I've got one going out and systematically patrolling the fence. Here's the point of all that. I, just, I didn't want to just waste your time with that story. Uh, but the point is, when we finally got some boundaries and some framework for this crazy dog, all of a sudden he found that he had a purpose. And so he discovered that he could have a job on the ranch and he wasn't going to get booted off the island. He could actually have a job to do. And so here's what I see a picture of. I see so many people who don't understand the boundaries and the framework of what it's like to be in the body. They're just running all over the place. They're just crazy and you can't get a hold of them. You can't fence them. You can't find a purpose for them. They don't even know their part. And they're just going to the next thing, going to the next thing, running all over the place, not connected and it's only when we find our framework and we find the boundaries and the proper fitting of the body that we begin to discover what we're really there for, okay? And so last week I talked about, how many of you guys remember last week when I talked about the plate, the styrofoam plate? How many of you guys have been to a, a picnic or something and you got this three-divider styrofoam plate? We talked about what that is. We talked about that if you want to be in the body properly fitted, what the, what the boundaries are or what it looks like, we've got to have three sections you got this bigger section here that is all about communion with God. If you want to be in the body, you've got to have communion with God. That needs to be the biggest portion, that you're encountering God's presence. And, and if you want a side dish, you're going to put a side dish on there of community. It's all about being with God's people. And if you want to add another side dish in there, it's all about the Great Commission. It's about the mission that we have with God. It's about God's purposes. And you can't double up and just say, well, I want communion and uh, a lot of community but I don't want to be on a great commission. You can't say, well, I'm going to be serving and being around God's people, but I'm never going to spend time in God's presence. You have to be properly fitted and have the right framework, and those need to be in balance, so to speak. You need to have all those ingredients, or you won't be in the body, or you won't be joint as every joint supplies and, and committed to be in the body in the right way. We need to be in the presence of God, and when we're in the presence of God, and we're around the people of God, that's when we discover the purposes of God. When we're in the presence of God and we're around the people of God, that's when we discover the purpose of God. Ephesians chapter 4, 16. We've read this a, a thousand times, but I'm going to read it again. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with it, which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. You've been placed in the body for a purpose. You have a part in the body. And if you haven't discovered your part, then you haven't discovered your purpose. Let me say it another way. If you find that your dreams for life are all dreams that are outside of the body, outside of what I just described, outside of God's presence, outside of God's people, or outside of God's purposes, then they aren't God dreams. They aren't, you're not living in the body. 
If you are a believer, your dreams need to be connected to the body, connected to what it's like in the body, or they don't serve the purposes of God in your life. Now, I should get an amen there, but I understand why I won't. So uh, I'll just keep going on. Nehemiah, though, he found his yes on the inside. Somewhere when he came to his part and he came and he discovered his purpose, he had a yes spirit on the inside of him. He said yes to God. He said yes to God. He had a yes rise up on the inside of us. Look, we just went through this series called The Blessed Life. And we learned how we're going to live our life financially and with our possessions with an open hand. Have you guys remember that? Just, I mean, just that freeing feeling of living with an open hand. What I want to talk about today is living our life as an open hand before God. Not just our possessions, not just our time, but, but where you, instead of holding on to whatever you think your life ought to be, that you say, Lord, I want my life as an open hand to be all about your purposes, all about your plans, to have a yes spirit rise up on in the inside of you. I've shared this story a thousand times, but there's so many new people in our church, I feel compelled to share it again. So if you've heard this, uh, it's just going to be reinforcement. But I, I love this story that I heard a long time ago, and it's about this pastor who got selected uh, to be, a, he, he got selected to come and be a pastor of a new church. And so there was this existing church there that he's the new pastor, and he comes in and he preaches his first sermon. He thought it went pretty well. He goes back to the back door to greet every person as they're coming out the door. And he's shaking hands, and they're all getting to know him. And finally, this peculiar guy comes up to him and looks him at this real intense look and says, Pastor, the answer is yes. Now, what's the question? And he just walks on. And so the pastor's like, okay, great. How many of you guys know there are weird people in church? You may be one of them. If you didn't laugh, you're it. You're the guy, Okay. And so, uh, so he goes, well, it must be weird people in church. And so he goes to the next week, he preaches the sermon, and he goes back to the line, and he's shaking hands, and he goes, and here comes that guy again. And so the guy comes up, and he looks at it, just the same thing, real intense, pastor, the answer is yes. Now, what's the question? And then he moves on. And so it was just eating up the pastor on the inside. He just didn't know what to do. Finally, third week comes. He preaches another, hits a home run sermon. He goes to the end, and people are coming through the line. The last guy in the line, here's that guy. And so the guy comes up to him again, same thing. Pastor, the answer is yes. Now, what's the question? And he starts to move on. The pastor's like, no, 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 no. No, wait, wait. What are you talking about? And so this guy says, he said, Pastor, I know you're new here. I know you don't know anybody. I know that... uh, you know, going into a new church is very difficult. Here's what I want you to know. I got your back 100%. Whatever you need me to do, whatever you want me to do, I don't care if it's clean the toilets, I don't care if it's preaching, I don't care what it is you need me to do, the answer is yes. You just ask the question. The answer will be yes. I thought it was so powerful, but what if we turned that question to God? Turn that statement and say, God, the answer is yes. Now what's the question? You see, I think a lot of us We want to say that. We want to have a yes spirit on the inside of us. But every single person here knows that there are points in our life where we know that's not true about us. We know that we want to say the answer is yes, now what's the question? But we know it's not true of us. If God asks us to do something difficult or something costly or something that we just really don't want to do, we would would say, Lord, I want the answer to be yes, but really in my heart, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk to that person. I don't want to sacrifice that. I don't want to do that. And here's what I want to talk about today, that Satan would love to steal your yes. He would love to steal your yes. He would love to, to take it, and, and a lot of people have excuses with their yes. Well, Lord, I could, but I want to have a yes, but. 
And so I want to talk about three common excuses that Satan uses to steal your yes. Are you ready for this? Three common excuses that Satan uses to steal your yes. The first one is this. I'm not prepared. If he can get us to believe that we're not qualified to do what God is asking us to do, if he can get us to, to believe that I don't have the goods for what it's going to take to get this done, then he's stolen your yes. You want to say yes, but something on the inside, the quote-unquote wisdom part of you, says, I'm not the right person for this. I'm not prepared. How many of you guys have ever heard of a lady uh, named Catherine Kuhlman? Anybody heard of Catherine Kuhlman? All right, some of you guys have. Uh, she was a lady. She was born in the early 1900s. Uh, and uh, she grew up, and at the age of 14, she got saved. Uh, she grew up actually in Concordia, Missouri, not too far from here, and at the age of 14, she got saved in the little Methodist church in Concordia, Missouri. And she uh, grew up, and by the 1930s, uh, she was already in ministry, and thousands of people, she started a church, thousands of people were coming in Denver, Colorado, thousands of people. Eventually, uh, she moved on from there, and it, she was having services all over the place. One night in one of her services later on in the 1940s, uh, somebody just in a normal service just like this, nobody prayed, nobody said anything, but just in the normal service, somebody spontaneously got healed in one of her services, just miraculously healed. And the next night, they had another meeting, and again, somebody miraculously got healed in the service. This began to launch this healing revival that she was a part of. And, and some people kind of, you know, think of her as controversial, and there were certainly some things that were controversial, but what can't be doubted is that there were miracle after miracle after miracle that happened during these healing revivals. And this launched into so many thousands and thousands and thousands of people that she ministered to over the years, and thousands and thousands of people actually really got healed. In fact, so many thousands of people, I just wanted to give you the scope of how big this was. Uh, they were having a, a tent meeting one night in 1952. In August of 1952, they had a big tent revival. And we, we don't have too many of those anymore, but they had a huge tent. There was a host pastor that was hosting this whole thing. He had a mobile home right on the site where the tent was. He gets a knock at the door at 4 in the morning. He goes out to open the door because Catherine was getting ready to do a, a meeting later on that day. And it's a policeman at the door. And the police and the pastor's kind of startled. He's like, what, what's going on? Four in the morning. And, and the policeman says, Pastor, you've got to do something about this. And he's like, what? He said, there are over 18,000 people waiting outside of that tent right now. The meeting wasn't until 11 o'clock that day. Thousands and thousands of people. People were getting healed all over the place. Uh, people, crippled people would get up and begin to walk. People who had been crippled since birth would get healed. And these are, are the things you can read about. These are documented things. Uh, well, there's this one guy in a meeting that he had a pacemaker installed uh, in his body eight months earlier. He went to a meeting. Catherine prayed for him. He felt intense pain in his body. He went home, and he, he took off his shirt, and the scar where the pacemaker had been installed was gone, disappeared. He went to the doctor, and the doctor x-rayed him and said, I don't know what's happened, but your pacemaker's gone. I don't, it's gone, and your heart is perfect. There were people, I mean, cancer would fall off. Tumors would dry up. Deaf people would hear, the blind would see. This is like Book of Acts stuff that, that happened a generation or two ago. And, and so thousands and thousands and thousands. Now, how many of you guys know, that's, that's awesome. How many of you guys would love to see? I mean, if that was really happening, that would be amazing, right? And that's what we, we believe that miracles still happen and that those things are possible. Here's the interesting thing, and here's why I tell you that story. In those days, 
People would say, you know what, Catherine, really, you're not supposed to be doing this because you're not a man. And, and, and so she would struggle with that, but she understood. So here's what she said. Here's why I love what she said. It's very interesting. She said, I don't believe that I was God's first choice to do this. She said, I actually believe that a man was called to do this, but he wasn't willing to pay the price. She said, I'm not even sure if I was God's second or third choice, but I do know that I said yes, and he used me. And I wonder how many people have been skipped over because Satan has stole their yes, because they say, you're not, you're not qualified, you're, you're not prepared. Was she? No, I don't think she was, but she did say Yes. I mean, think about even in our church. Let me just, I'll just get real with you just for a little bit, a little family meeting for those of you guys who are just new, her family meeting. Even in our church, there are many people in our church who are qualified even to do certain things, qualified to lead real life, qualified to, to go out and, and to do outreach or to lead up a ministry or to start a new thing or to disciple somebody or to, to go out and do whatever, qualified, overqualified, but they don't have a yes spirit in them. Do you know what God does? He doesn't, he, he's not phased by that. He's going to have his purposes accomplished on the earth. He'll skip over the qualified and he'll use the available. He has no problem doing on-the-job training with people. He has no problem with that. And, and you're, what if your story was that? What if, if you let a yes spirit rise up on the inside of you? What if one day you could look back and say, I don't even know if God was God's first or second or third or 15th choice, but I did say yes and look what God has done. How powerful would that be? Yet Satan steals many people's yes. I believe that, I mean, Peter wasn't qualified, was he? He was kind of loudmouth, shoot his mouth off. And he was not qualified, but yet in three years, God took him to preaching on the day of Pentecost and did some amazing, amazing things. All right? Number two, the second excuse that, God, that, that, that Satan uses to steal God's yes from us is this. I'm not the pastor. And I know in our Christian culture today, we've chipped away at that quite a bit because the old school, it used to be the pastor does all these things. I think there's still remnants of that today. Many people feel like, well, I'm not the pastor. I mean, don't we pay Sean to do the ministry? I mean, isn't that what it's supposed to happen? I mean, no, that's not the biblical model, is it? That's not the biblical model. And yet I think there's still something in us that says, I'm not supposed to do that because I'm not one of the professionals. Or I'm not one of the ministry leaders. Or I'm not a real life group leader. Or I'm not a whatever. And we think, because I'm not, then Satan steals our yes. Let's look at what the Bible says is actually supposed to happen. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers... To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Did you see what happened there? He gave these gifts, these what we call five-fold gifts. A gift or, or an office of, of a pastor or an evangelist or an apostle or a teacher or a pro, prophesying. Those, the, the purpose of those people or those gifts or those offices are for what? To do the ministry? That's not what it says. It, it kind of sounds like it. It says... Here's what their purpose is. It's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. There's, here's what I want you to see. There's not, it, it's not, it's, it's missing a comma if you want it to say, well, they're supposed to do the ministry. Because here's what it would read if you think that they're supposed to do the ministry. It would say, he gave all these things to equip the saints, comma, that's one of their jobs, for the work of the ministry, that's another one of their jobs, for the building up of the body of Christ. So you have three jobs there to equip the saints, work, to do the ministry, and the building up the body. That's not what it says, though, is it? It says, here's their job. Their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
It means my job as a pastor is to equip you to do ministry. Here's what I believe. If you have the gift or the office of evangelist, your job is not to go out and evangelize so much as it is to train other people to equip them to evangelize. If you have a prophetic type gift or office, your job is not so much to always give words of prophecy where everybody has to keep coming back to you for their word from the Lord. It's so that you can deposit and equip other people so that they can get words from the Lord for other people. That's the role of those gifts. And so it, here's what I believe is supposed to happen, that if, I, if you have a problem and you need a pastor, if you've been in this church long enough, you ought to be able to pastor someone else. Because if not, I've done a poor job or you just haven't been paying attention. It's one of the two. Because that's the way it's supposed to work. The church is like an engine. It's like, it's like an engine when it's all put together, it works well. But if we were to dismantle that engine and have a bunch of parts laying around, how many of you guys know that's no longer an engine? It's only when each part gets joint and fitted together and every part is doing its part that it works together. And that's how it's supposed to work. My job as a pastor is not to do ministry. It's to equip people for ministry. My job as a believer, because I'm a pastor and a believer, my job as a believer is to do ministry. Does everybody see that this morning? So we've got to lay the ax to that idea that, well, we pay the professionals to do ministry. Now, some of you might say, well, I don't really believe in those five. They're like, what are you talking about? They're special like, gifts or whatever. In our church, we would always just elect people. In my old church, we just elect people to be a deacon or all that type of stuff. Listen, this ain't your old church, okay? This is not the way we do it here. That's not the way the Bible says to do it. Because in Acts chapter 6, they elected, they chose people to be deacons for what purpose? It wasn't to fill these offices. It wasn't to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It wasn't to lead the church. The apostles were doing that. It was to serve tables and to pick up the slack. Now, if you want to vote some people in to pick up the slack around here and wipe some tables, more power to you. Go for it. I'd love for that to happen, right? But that's not the gift. That's not the purpose of the gifts. And so I want you to, to see that separation here this morning. I want you to see that your job, every single person here, if you're a believer, is to do the work of the ministry. And, and so th that's the purpose of those gifts. Here's what these times are, are not about. Some people come in here and they think, well, I come into church on Sunday mornings because I want to grow and I want to grow. These times are not about you growing and growing. That's not what this is for. These times are about you growing and going. That's what it's about. It's not about you growing and growing. Well, I come to real life group to grow and to grow. I come to classes to grow and to grow. I come to church to grow and to grow. No, you come because it's necessary for you to grow and get equipped so that you can go. Is there, everybody on the same page here this morning? That's what we're doing here right now. Okay, so I want you to get that in your spirit. I, I know that a lot of people think, well, you know, you're the pastor. You're supposed to be doing hospital visits and, and praying for people and praying for the sick and doing all these things. As a believer, yes. As a pastor, hmm. You know what I love this week? There was uh, many things I heard about this week. I, I don't love the reason why we had to do this or to see this, but here's what I saw this week. I saw people in the hospital uh, that were getting visited. I saw people who had needs that were being met. I saw people uh, who had crisis situations and people showed up at the hospital and, and people praying for people. Was I there present for any of those? No, I wasn't. Does that mean I don't care? No, I care immensely. But you know what? As a pastor, if I'm doing my job, somebody ought to beat me to the hospital. 
to pray for somebody. Because my job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, if there's a pushback in your spirit or in your flesh on this, I'll just name it what it is. If there's a pushback on that, I would just say go back to the word of God and see what happened in the word of God. And I say that not because I don't have things to do and I don't want to do things. I say that because until we get every part working together doing its share, we are not going to look like the body. And we're not going to be built up in the way that we should. Are you guys catching this this morning? Because that's what the Word of God says. And Satan will steal your yes if he gets you to believe, I'm not supposed to do that. That's somebody else's job. I'm not the pastor. I'm not a ministry leader. I'm not supposed to. No, you are supposed to do that. You are called. I want everybody to understand right now and just say this. Say, I am called to do the work of the ministry. Every single person here is called to do the work of the ministry. That's what Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 says. So if you've been here in this church for two years, two or three years, and you cannot lead a real life group or teach a class, what have you been doing? Either I've done a bad job, or you just haven't been paying attention and growing on your own. It could be either one. I'll take the blame for it. But you, you see what I'm saying? Jesus took Peter, and in three years, he went from a fisherman who knew nothing, cussing like a sailor, to preaching on the day of Pentecost. You see, in two years' time, you've heard enough of the Word of God. In two years' time, you've had the opportunity to spend time in God's presence so that you could get up and have something to give to someone else. You see, here's what discipleship is. You want to know what discipleship is? Let me first off say what discipleship is not. Discipleship is not, I'm growing. That's not discipleship. Let me tell you what discipleship is also not. It's not, I'm growing and I'm pouring into someone else. That's not discipleship. Do you know what discipleship is? Discipleship is, I'm growing, I'm pouring into someone else, they've raised up, and now they're doing it. That's discipleship. It's this complete thing. And you know what? Most believers stop at, I'm kind of growing I'm showing up most of the time. I want you to get a vision on the inside of what would it look like if Satan didn't steal your yes anymore. What would it look like if you got in your spirit that I am called? I may not have much experience. I may not be qualified by anybody's standard, but I can say yes to God. What would it look like in your spirit? You say, you've already got all these excuses. Well, I'm not good. I don't know if it's the Bible. I don't know if I believe this or that. It doesn't matter. Just say yes to God and he'll use you. Listen, let me just speak even a little stronger. If, you, if you're in our real life group, or if you're a real life group leader, or you're a ministry leader in our church in some way, shape, or form at any level, and you are not raising someone up, I'm not just talking about doing the work of the ministry. I'm talking about pouring into someone and raising them up so that if God moved the pieces around and wanted you to do something new or to move you into another area, that someone else could take it over because you raised them up and they could be sent out, then get busy after it because that's, the way, that's what discipleship looks like. That's what it looks like, is when you're raising people up and sending them out. That's what discipleship looks like. And so I want you to get that in your spirit. If you're in the body, you're supposed to contribute to building the body up. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's like four generations. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others also. You see this process, this cascade happening. Do you guys realize that make disciples is a command to every single person in this room? I want you to let that sink in just real quick. If you are a believer, make disciples is a command to every person in this room. 
It's not just to church leaders. It's not just to pastors. It's to every person in this room. And yet most of us have left that out, and then we're not growing. I, years ago, when we first moved down here, we, uh, we were homeschooling our kids, and so we wanted to be connected to some sort of homeschool group of some sort. We'd heard about this group of people. It was like four or five or six couples. They were really connected. They had their own homeschool co-op thing. Turns out we found out they did everything together. They had Bible study together. They had home group or homeschool together. And in fact, they didn't end up going to church anywhere because they had been so focused on them, them, them that they ended up not going to church anywhere. And we, we kind of went, went around just one time to go visit. And I was like, this is kind of weird, guys. Like, I, maybe you're starting a church here, but not having a church home or other believers. It's just you and that's it. And so I asked the question. I said, I got curious and I kind of got a little ornery too. I'll just admit. But I, I asked the question. I said, what happens... If, some, if you lead someone to Jesus, what happens to them? Where do they go? Where do they fit? There's no room for you to expand. There's no room for you to go. What happens if you lead somebody to Jesus? And they didn't have an answer for it because they weren't planning on leading anybody to Jesus. There, there didn't need to be any more room. There didn't need to be any more relationship because they weren't planning on making disciples. And Satan had won. He had stolen their yes. They, they had this idea that it wasn't for them, that they weren't to do the work of the ministry, that they were supposed to just kind of do their own thing. I've got a video real quick. Francis Chan talks about discipleship and talks about what it is. Instead of just telling you what he said, I'll let him say it. So let's go ahead and roll it. When I was a kid, we used to play this game called Simon Says. All right, most of us have played that, unless you're really young, because there's no app for it. it, it Simon Says is... Uh, you know, you just, Simon says, pat your head, you know, so, okay, you know, Simon said it. Um, it's just, it was a very simple game, but it's so weird how in the church, Jesus says is a totally different game. If Jesus says something, you don't have to do it, you just have to memorize it. <laughs> you, 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 you study it, you memorize You guys, it, it doesn't make any sense, a lot of the things we do. When he tells us to go out and make disciples, and how many people in the, our churches are actually making disciples? But they memorized it. You know, when I tell my daughter, hey, hey, Rach, go clean your room. She doesn't come back to me two hours later and go, I memorized what you said. <laughs> you said, Rach, go clean your room. I can say it in Greek. My friends are going to come over and we're going to have a study on what it would look like if I cleaned my room. <laughs> she knows better than that. And so why do we think we're going to come before the judge one day and quote everything that he said and talk about how much we know? It's just, it's just this black and white stuff. If I just started with scripture, I'd go, here's what I would do. I would start making disciples. So powerful, isn't it? Just a little idea, a little concept of what that, that's like. Let me ask you a question. Who in your life can you look to and say, what I did for them, they're doing for others? Who in your life can you look to and say, what I did for them, now they're doing for others? That's what God has called every single person in this room to do. And, he's, and Satan has done a pretty good job at deceiving us into thinking, that's not my job. 
But I'm telling you, according to Scripture, every single believer here holds that as a responsibility that every single person has. You may say, well, I'm not prepared. Go back to point one <laughs> and get that in your spirit again. Say, I'm not the pastor. Well, that's, that's okay. You, you can still have a yes spirit on the inside of you. All right, finally, last point is this. The last uh, excuse is this. I'm not passionate. You feel like, well, I don't, I don't think I'm supposed to do that because I just don't have a passion for that. I'm not, I'm not supposed to do that. God wouldn't call me to that because there's not a passion on the inside of it, and I'm just going to be led by whatever I feel passionate about. Now, here's the thing. I do believe that God gives us a hint at times at what we're called to do based on what, we're nat- what he's deposited a passion inside of us for. I do believe that God can lead us that way. But if you make that the ultimate decision maker for what God has called you to do, it's off. You're going to be led astray. Why? Because sometimes God calls us to do things that we aren't excited about. And if we are led by, am I passionate about this? No, I'm not passionate. Then it must not be God's will for me. It must not be God's calling. If we make that the decider in our life, we're going to get off and Satan has stole our yes. Because you guys know that there are things that God calls us to do that aren't glamorous, that aren't pretty, that we don't even like to do sometimes, but God still calls us to do it. And we, if we're using that, I, I have to be passionate, this has to be my passion, then we'll miss it because there are times in the kingdom of God where we're supposed to serve when we don't feel like it. We're supposed to serve where we don't feel like it. We're supposed to sacrifice in ways that we would never just naturally decide to do that. Am I stepping on anybody's toes yet? Because I want to. I, I want to get that going. Because we all need to. I mean, when I'm preparing this sermon, I'm like, yeah, I, I feel that. There's some times when, when, when I deal with things that I'm like, God, I don't really want to do that. That's not really what I'm passionate about. And God says, I'm calling you to do it. Just serve, sacrifice, take up your cross, lay down your life. God is going to call you to do things that you are not passionate about. And if you don't get that in your spirit to have a yes spirit that whatever, my life is open. I'm, I'm not going to be led by my passions. Do you think that Nehemiah was passionate about building a wall? I don't think he was. He didn't know how to do it. He had to travel and give up everything in his life for a season to be able to go do it. But what Nehemiah did is he let the purposes and the callings of God and the concerns of God become his purposes and concerns. And he said, God, I'm not going to be led by my passion, but if this concerns you, then I'm going to let it concern me. If you want the toilets clean, if that concerns you, then I'm going to clean the toilets. If you want to do something in my life and work something out of my life, then I'm all for it. And so Nehemiah... He went back there and he traveled and he started to repair the wall. I don't think he was necessarily passionate about it, but God called him to it. And so he goes and he starts to build up around all the gates. I got a picture again of the, of the gates and the wall. And he starts to go and God gives him a strategy for how to do this. God gives him a strategy for how he's going to do this. And they were going to go and there were all these different gates. And, and I want you to see the strategy in Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 28. It says, and above the horse gate, the priests repaired the wall. Each one repaired the section immediately across from his own house. Nehemiah's strategy that God gave him was, he said this, I want you to walk outside your door and wherever you all are at, build the wall that's in front of you. You like someone else's wall or you like this because that would look more fun or that's more trendy, but yet I put something right in front of you. Build that one. And it's not always fun to build what's right in front of you. Some of you guys are avoiding what God has put in your lap because you don't like it or because it's not fun or you're not passionate about it anymore. Listen, most of the time, God's purposes, he's laid right in front of us. 
And yet we can't see it because we're looking over it or around it for something new because we're bored. I'm preaching to myself, okay? And so he did that. So let me, see, let me show you how that can be uncomfortable for us because some people, it's better than others, all right? Look at this in Nehemiah chapter 15, or 3, verse 15 to 16. It says, The fountain gate was prepared by Shalom, the son of Kol Jose. And the, I just spoke in tongues there if you didn't know. Um, and uh, the leader of Mizpah district, he rebuilt it, he roofed it, he set up its doors and installed its bolts and bars. Then he repaired, listen to what he gets to do, the fountain gate. He's got the wall of the pool of Siloam near the king's garden. And he rebuilt that as far as the stairs that descend up from the city of David. This guy walked out and what he looked out in front of him, he's like, man, there's a pool of Siloam. I get to rebuild that and the stairs leading up to the king, king's city. And he's got this really cool wall to build. Okay, the next guy, it says next to him was Nehemiah, a different Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, the leader of half the tribe of Bethzur. He built, rebuilt the wall from a, a place across from the tombs of David's family. So he gets to rebuild this ancient historic tombs of David. I mean, this is awesome. And as far as the water reservoir, and listen to this, the house of the warriors. I mean, he, gets, he steps out and he gets to be a part of something that looks pretty cool. He's rebuilding the part in front of the house of the warriors for crying out loud. So these guys have a pretty cool wall to build. Now, if we skip back up to verse 14, the verse right before these, we see the hero of the whole story because there was a gate that was called the Dung Gate. Somebody walked outside their, their door and said, Nehemiah, I'm not sure your strategy is so great because what do you think happened at the Dung Gate? That's what was going on. Like stuff was, was going through there probably, right? And so it was the dung gate. This guy is really the hero of the story because he walked out and he said, you know what? I don't get to build the house of the warriors. I don't get to do the pool of Siloam. I got the dung gate. But I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to build it to the best of my ability. And it goes on and it says, that uh, in verse 14, it says, the leader, uh, that he rebuilt it, he set its doors, he installed the bolts and the bars. And, and so he, instead of looking over at all these cool people and what they got to do and what was trendy and what was passionate and what he would really rather do, he said, God, I'll build what's right in front of me. Let me just tell you something God showed me, because how many of you guys are driven people? I mean, you just think you're pretty driven, and I, I'm, I can be that way at times. Uh, God started to show me that... A, that uh, a driven person's toughest task many times is to properly manage their own ambitions. It's one of our toughest tasks if you're driven because we always want to keep pushing. We always want to do something new. I, I revealed to some of the leaders uh, the other day, I was like, you know what, some of my trouble, it's a, it's a blessing and it's a curse at the same time, but I want to just keep going and getting bigger and growing and reaching more people, sometimes at the expense of the content. Because I'm just so driven to keep going. And some of you guys are, are that way. And one of the things we have to do is to manage that and to, and to ask ourselves, God, is this your deal? Is this what you want? Or am I supposed to go and build that wall? Or am I supposed to build the wall that you've placed right in front of me? Because your purpose is most likely in the wall right in front of you. I can tell you, anytime I get off in life and I start living somewhere in the future that I ought not be and worrying about things in the future I ought not worry about, every time God brings me back and he says, Sean, What's right in front of you? If you will just take care of this day, if you'll maximize this day instead of living somewhere else, if you'll maximize the project I put right in front of you, if you'll do faithful with the little, you won't have to worry about the much. 
But you can't be thinking so much about the much that you're not faithful with what he's put right in front of you. You see, Satan will steal our yes by saying, I'm not passionate about that. And then he's won. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, who, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I believe this. God leads us more by purpose than passion. God leads us more by his purposes than our passions. Sometimes those passions God will drop in our heart to motivate us. I'm convinced that other times they won't be dropped in our heart. And he just wants to have a raw, faith-filled yes come out of us, even when we don't feel like it. If we would just build the wall right in front of us. Let me, let me close up with this story. Uh, when I was, didn't get to share this in the first service, when I was 19 years old, I remember, uh, and I've shared similar versions of this before, but I remember uh, feeling called to the ministry, feeling like God wanted me to do a certain thing, and, and while all of my my friends and people my age were going off to college and people that I knew that wanted to be called to ministry were going off to, to Bible colleges that God said, I don't, I don't want you to do that. I want you to stay here and to literally build the wall in front of you because I was doing construction building walls. <laughs> and he's like, I just want you to build this wall. And so for a couple years in there where everything else was passing me by, I felt like life was passing me by. He said, build this wall. And so I kept faithful. Like, God, I don't see how you're going to do this. And in just a short time, within a week's time, everything changed, and all of a sudden, God opened this door wide where I had no, experience, no training, no experience, to all of a sudden lead this, this big youth ministry out of nowhere. Just in one week time, I went from building a wall to uh, God had me in the right place at the right time. And if I had not been faithful building what was right in front of me, then it would, I mean, it changed that door opening because I was faithful building the wall in front of me. That door opened in my life that literally changed the course of my life. Literally changed the course of my life. And I, it still does not make sense in, in the natural why I, that door opened for me. But I know this, that God saw the faithfulness in the little. He saw the faithfulness of what was in front of me to be able to open the door to something new. I want the worship team to come back up and we're going to, Worship God one more time. But I want you to think about this as you're standing up to today. We need to be passionate about God and his purposes, period. Go ahead and let's all stand up. We don't need to be passionate about our passion. We need to be passionate about God's purposes, whatever those things might be. And here's what I know. Whenever you get in the purpose of God, that's when the joy comes. The joy doesn't come in the passion. How many of you guys have ever been passionate about something? And then the joy, you lost all the joy after time, right? See, joy doesn't, doesn't exist or doesn't live in passion. Joy lives in purpose. I believe it's Hebrews chapter 12 that, that it says about Jesus that it was the joy that was set before him, the joy of the cross. Now, there was no joy in the natural in the cross. He wasn't passionate about that. But when he had a purpose, all of a sudden, the joy and the passion came. And I'm just suggesting to you today, don't let Satan steal your yes. Right now, God has called many of you to do different things. He's called all of us to make disciples. And Satan wins when we start to give in to all of these excuses. So I want to pray, and then we're going to worship God. Lord, I thank you so much that you are leading, and you are directing, you're guiding, you're speaking. And I pray for your, your presence. I pray for somebody to get a hold of that today. Someone to be inspired by the stories that have been shared and said, you know what? If she can do it, then you may have something for me. If he can do it, then you may have something for me. Lord, I pray that people would let those, 
ideas, those old ideas drop off that says I'm not qualified or, or I'm not the pastor or I'm not passionate about that. And they would look and say, God, I'm holding my life with an open hand. And I say, you move the pieces around. I'll build whatever you said in front of me and I'll be faithful to that. Lord, I pray that that would, would uh, connect people into the body so they'd be jointly fit together, building itself up. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship one more time. Next week, we're going to continue. It takes a body. It's going to be good. We'll see you then. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.